KFI AM uh, 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Bill Handel here. It is a cold Friday morning, February 17th. Some of the stories uh, that we are covering and are trending. Uh, Bruce Willis diagnosed with frontotemporal, <coughs> excuse me, dementia. Uh, one of the worst forms, the most aggressive forms of dementia. It's a heartbreaker and uh uh, the prognosis is not good, and uh, he is effectively losing his mind very, very quickly. Uh, also, um, LAPD is going to uh, provide increased security around Jewish uh, institutions, particularly synagogues, uh, because of shootings uh, yesterday. Two men outside uh, synagogues in the Pico-Robertson area. And since tonight is uh, Shabbat, the Sabbath uh, starts on Friday night. A lot of people going to synagogue. Now, a story out of Orange County I want to share with you. And uh, uh, this is one that you sort of shake your head, and uh, you're either on one side or the other side of the coin. There's a former Westminster attorney and a co-founder of the Hessian Motorcycle Club who uh, 40 years ago was convicted of killing uh, a fellow Hessian and his bodyguard and uh, then raping and torturing uh, a young lady who was also part of this group. And uh, he got life imprisonment or 46 years, and he is being released. He has cancer, compassionate release. Uh, Todd Spitzer, who is uh, clearing his throat, as you can hear. Uh, <laughs> uh, Todd, who is DA of Orange County, uh, a little incensed about this and sort of stuck, and you can't do much about it, can you? Yeah, so I know that you and Wayne love to talk about the law, and really this is a difficult situation, Bill. What happens is once the Department of Corrections tells us and the court that a person is terminally ill, we have 10 days to put our hearing together, and our burden of proof is to show by clear and convincing evidence that upon release, this individual will commit a super strike, which is mayhem, rape, or another murder. So, I mean, the burden of proof on us in 10 days without access to the prison file, his history in prison, and because of the legislature and the governor, we cannot argue the heinousness of the original crime. Hey, in does- other words, the only discussion is, will he commit a new crime when he's released? Okay, a couple things. First of all, the heinousness, of course, uh, the parole board has all that information in front of them. So it's simply a question of how the parole board views this. And uh, one, I mean, the, these murders were I mean, horrific. Execution style, rape, torture of a young lady. I mean, it really doesn't get m- m- more disgusting and depraved than that. However, 40 years in jail, 78 years old, what kind of a risk is he? And I know that you are on the side of not releasing him, correct? Yeah, but Bill, let me correct a couple things. This is in front of a Superior Court judge, not the parole board. And let me correct you. In California today, neither this Superior Court judge who heard this case yesterday and a few days before or a parole board in any parole hearing can consider the original crimes or the heinousness of their crimes. Oh, he's walking there. Under California law today, it's outrageous. They cannot consider the gravity of the original crimes. Hey, how did that happen? That happened in the decisions of case law and Prop 47 
Prop 57 and the ridiculous changes in state law that the governor has signed and the legislature has imposed. So, I mean, the bottom line, I mean, he is going to be released. I mean, there is no issue uh, because if a judge cannot consider what the gravity of the crime is, as you say, and he's done 78 years or he's done 40 years and he's 78 years old, uh, you know, how does anybody uh, say no to that if you don't know what happened? Uh, and, and so I'm curious. Uh, I'm assuming that there have been case law uh, or case, uh, lawsuits to overturn that. And do we have the political will here in uh, California to undo that? Probably not with Newsom. But uh, how do we undo that? Because a lot of people are offended by this. And I don't know which way I feel about this, by the way. Well, let me tell you how I feel. And maybe it'll influence your opinion. But let me tell you. We got 10 days' notice in snail mail. In other words, the Department of Corrections had no interest in helping us get prepared for this hearing. They wanted him out. Why? They don't want the expense of taking care of him uh, as he's increasingly demanding medical care. Two, they didn't even have the courtesy to notify the victims. We flew the sister in from out of state. The brother participated uh, through WebEx. And... Uh, most importantly, he's being sent to a city, San Jose, where his daughter lives, and they had no say in the fact that he's going to be placed there. So let me tell you how I feel, okay, Bill? When you commit murders of this magnitude, you have no business being released. You should die in prison. You should suffer as much or more than your victim. Yeah, but that's for God's sakes, Bill. That would why make, should we release these people into the? Okay, okay. let me re, let me respond. And I I understand uh, clearly. I've known you for a very long time. And as far as the money is concerned, uh, that's legitimate taxpayer money because people dying of cancer e- eat up enormous amounts of of, of money. Uh, uh, just the medical care is just like astronomical. And uh, also, uh, is if he is that close to death. Uh, does it make any difference? Where's the risk? So it's simply a question of punishment. And if you want to say uh, that he is, should suffer as much as the victims, he should be executed back of the head, tortured and raped. Does that make sense? Well, we are a civilized society, um, and so we don't engage in eye for an eye. But I'll tell you something, Bill. I am sick and tired of this legislature and this governor having compassion for mass murder. Yeah, and you're not alone. All right, Todd, thank you, as always. Thank you, Bill. DA of uh, Orange County. He's been a friend of mine for, what, 30-something years already? Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the Dominion lawsuit uh, that's uh, going against Trump and uh, his followers. And this is the allegation by some Trump um, allies and uh, Trump himself at uh, certain points, that the Dominion company, which manufactures uh, at least the hardware that's used in voting machines all over the country, they may actually manufacture the machines themselves, were in fact um, cheating for Joe Biden. They were programmed to eliminate Donald Trump votes and straight out cheat for Joe Biden, and therefore that was part of the election fraud that was committed. Now, if you watch Fox, which I do, as a matter of fact, Fox is right there on the monitor as well as CNN, and I read all the papers here. Uh, one of the things about Fox News is uh, they allowed uh, tons and tons of guests who talked about the election being stolen. And as a matter of fact, uh, Ray 
Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, I think particularly Tucker Carlson, was warned by Rupert Murdoch, who owns the network, owns Fox, hey, stop pushing the election fraud business. Uh, you're going too far. You're going too far. All right, so Dominion files a lawsuit against uh, Fox, and they get information. They subpoena information. They got a bunch of emails. Oh, boy. Uh, Tucker Carlson, while he is uh, maybe not outright denying the election, but certainly leaning in that direction, writes to a producer uh, about Sidney Powell, who uh, was on the show over and over again, uh, uh, proposing that the election was stolen. And he writes outright, Sidney Powell is lying. That's it. Straight out. Isn't that terrific? Uh, the uh, company founder, the owner, Rupert uh, Murdoch, says terrible stuff damaging everybody. This is when he shut that down and said, you got to calm down a lot. Uh, wild claims by Powell on the show, uh, Rudy Giuliani on Fox, talking about how the election was outright stolen. And this is going to be a problem for Fox. And it goes on. Sean Kennedy, uh, Hannity in an email writes, he's acting like an insane person, referring to um, Giuliani. Uh, Laura Ingram, uh, she is on 10 o'clock, and uh, she writes, such an idiot. This is part of a huge amount of internal correspondence and deposition testimony released uh, yesterday. This is a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the network, as well as they're filing against virtually everybody that said that they're fraud. But this is filed by Dominion Voting System against the network. Why? Because they're saying, or Dominion is saying, that as you allowed this disinformation and didn't in fact tell the truth when you knew the truth and promulgated or at least didn't stop the premise that Dominion has cheated and changed the vote and undid democracy. This is the part that I find so fascinating about this. This is the big propaganda. This is the basis of, quote, the concept of the big lie. And that is the attack on uh, Trump followers and those that are election denier. Uh, the attack on them is the argument that they, in fact, are interfering with our democracy by stopping a legitimate vote and trying to undo it. Their argument, Sidney Powell, Giuliani, is that what they're doing is democratic. Democracy is denial of an election that they say was rigged. By the way, how much, how much evidence as far as rigging? Zero. 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 I talk to people around here. Oh, all the time, who believe that, uh, and smart people, that uh, the election was stolen. And I always ask the same question. How did that get past 63 judges if the election was stolen? How were they able to bamboozle 63 judges? Uh, how were those that say Joe Biden won, how were they able to bamboozle 50 state election officials, even in red, red, red states? How were they able to do all that? I mean, are they that smart? Well, uh, uh, well, and, and there is no answer to that. But does this help uh, Dominion? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. In a statement, Fox Now is downplaying uh, all this correspondence, saying it's filled with cherry-picked quotes stripped of any key context. 
Could be true, by the way, because the information that's released is always the most salacious, the cherry-picked quotes, always. And uh, so those are the stories that uh, we produce. Those are the stories that are being reported. Fox went on to say there'll be a lot of noise and confusion generated by Dominion and their opportunistic private equity owners. Could be. Could be. On the other hand, uh, it's pretty damning. Uh, As a matter of fact, a lot of the correspondence shows Fox officials agonizing over the false information that went over Fox. We're talking about people within the organization uh, and were tormented. Uh, Frankly, they were uh, very conservative and were tormented about the fact that actually Fox called the election for Joe Biden earlier than any other network. They were days ahead. And if you remember uh, Trump being, I mean, just infuriated, his supporters were never going to watch uh, Fox again. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that uh, it was downplayed by Fox and uh, the uh, election or allowed uh, people allowed to push that election was rigged, even though they knew it wasn't, was because of Newsmax. They were frightened that Newsmax was taking away their audience, which it was, because they called the election for Biden. Go figure that one out. Now, we this morning or yesterday heard that uh, Bruce Willis has been diagnosed with uh, frontotemporal dementia. Uh, You originally told last year that it was uh, aphasia, which is a a much lighter form. Uh, I understand that this is really bad. With us, Dr. Dung Trin, Chief Medical Officer at the Healthy Brain Clinic. He was referred by Dr. Jim Keeney, so we know he's... Uh, the presumption is you're, you're good and you know what you're talking about, doctor. Uh, welcome aboard, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Bill. Thank you for uh, the invite. I've been oh. listening to you for years, yeah. and so... Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pleasure. So uh, explain, wh- number one, the difference between aphasia, which we were told, and uh, the frontotemporal dementia. And from what I understand, th- this is the, one of the worst forms that you can get. Would you explain that, please? Absolutely. So aphasia simply means difficulty speaking, uh, difficulty being able to make a sentence and uh, and just you know, communicating. So that's aphasia. Aphasia can come from having a stroke uh, or or having something like dementia. Uh, not a common thing that we see in dementia uh, with aphasia. And and just to give you an idea, dementia is simply a big umbrella of, of every condition that is associated with memory loss. Um, and in this umbrella of dementia, uh, frontotemporal dementia is under that umbrella. The, the biggest part of the umbrella is actually Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's dementia takes up two-thirds of the umbrella. And then uh, after that is frontotemporal dementia. And, and so that's uh, something that, you know, most people don't hear much about frontotemporal dementia. We always, you know, hear about Alzheimer's and everyone's concerned with Alzheimer's, and as they should, especially in Orange County, it's the number three cause of death. But right behind that is frontotemporal dementia. And, uh, and there's a difference between them, which uh, I can certainly explain. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, 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 and tell me if, uh, and comment on this. I have been told that uh, frontotemporal dementia is uh, one of, if not the worst form of dementia you can get. 
Uh, does that make sense? Yes. So it occurs in general uh, in an age group that's earlier earlier than the Alzheimer's age group. So most folks with Alzheimer's have Alzheimer's after the age of 65. Frontal temporal dementia occurs probably between uh, your 50s and 60s. So it, it, it starts earlier. And it is a, a very, you know, quote unquote, scary condition. We don't quite know what causes it. We don't have a cure. We don't have any prevention strategies. There are, uh, you know, and, and unlike the Alzheimer's dementia where there's a plaque that you can detect on, uh, you know, with certain testing, there is an associated plaque with frontal temporal dementia. It's a little bit harder to diagnose, although, although it's diagnosable. How do you know? How do you diagnose it if uh, there's no plaque, uh, for example, that when there is in uh, Alzheimer's in the brain? How do you do it? Is it simply testing? It is uh, their actions, the way the uh, patients react? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the symptoms of Alzheimer's and the symptoms of frontal temporal dementia overlap. But here are some, some differences between them. Alzheimer's starts off with memory loss symptoms, right? You're forgetting names and words, and, and that's kind of the predominant symptoms of Alzheimer's is memory loss. Frontal temporal dementia doesn't always start off with memory loss. It starts off with mood swings, behavioral changes, personality changes, and then the memory loss kind of mixes in later on. Mm. So, so it's not always obvious. It's like, you know, your, your loved one starts having mood swings, they get angry, they get upset, uh, or their personality changes, and the first, you don't think of frontal temporal dementia as like the first diagnosis, right? You, you're thinking they're just getting ticked off all the time. Whereas, uh, so those are the subtle differences with the overlap of, of memory loss. Uh, on an MRI, on an MRI with frontal temporal dementia, we often see that the, the frontal lobe of the brain, which is in the front, right, and, and the temporal lobes of the brain, which is on the side, uh, what we see is we see that they start to shrink at, at an earlier you know, time span uh, with that. And so these areas of the brain on an MRI would shrink. And then so if you see that on an MRI and then you add in the mood swings, the, the personality changes and the memory loss that's progressive over time, you put that together and it's frontal temporal dementia. Wow. That this sounds yeah. scary. Uh, can, can symptoms be dealt with? That's number one. And the other one, are people aware that they're diving into this dementia, which has to be horrific if you have an awareness? Yeah, great question. Uh, so although there isn't a, a medication directed at the, the root cause of frontal temporal dementia, uh, the medications that exist today for FTD are, are certainly medications that treat symptoms. And so <clears throat> because of the emotional changes, the mood swings, uh, the personality changes, a lot of these symptoms are are directed and treatment are directed at treating aggression, treating insomnia, treating anxiety, treating depression. Uh, so that's what we treat. We treat the symptoms uh, currently. And, uh, and so it's symptomatic treatment, uh, not unlike, you know, what, what we do for Alzheimer's uh, as well. The, um, the other thing, though, I, I want to mention is that this isn't a condition that we cannot reduce our risk with. Uh, there are lifestyle changes 
there's nutritional changes. There are certain things that we can do to certainly improve on reducing the risk for dementia in general. And, uh, and in the world of, uh, of uh, dementia, it's, you know, it's all neurodegeneration, right? Your brain cells are dying, and, and that leads to either Alzheimer's, FTD, Parkinson's. Um, and there, there are common threads among all these conditions, and those common threads include the, the lack of exercise, the, the poor circulation to the brain, uh, inflammation, chronic inflammation plays a huge role in, in leading to these conditions. And so, so yeah, there's a lot we can do, Bill. Uh, we can reduce our inflammation with an anti-inflammatory okay. diet. We, we can get better sleep. Uh, you know, when you sleep at night, your brain is recharging. Your brain is kind of clearing out the trash during, you know, during sleep. We know that in Alzheimer's for sure. Uh, there is exercise. We know that uh, those who exercise have a better brain and a lower risk for dementia uh, in whatever you know types of dementia. And so there's a lot we can do. I know specifically in the world of Alzheimer's, there is a diet. And, uh, and that diet in one study have shown to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by 54%. Yeah, let me... Right? Yeah, let me ask you about that uh, because um, I exercise, but I eat like crap, uh, and so instantly I'm going, oh, oh, by chances, uh, right. I'll increase. But you know, you know, for example, let's say you have uh, five out of uh, a, a thousand, you know, or whatever, uh, how many right. people get it, and you reduce it by fifty four percent. So now you're talking about two or three out of a thousand. So it's yes. it's not a big deal. Are we talking about a substantial? Uh, decrease where uh, you're looking at uh, some real numbers as opposed to these little tiny incremental numbers? Absolutely. Uh, there was a study published probably about two months ago uh, out in England where uh, where 70-something thousand participants were, uh, they were wearing these these uh, watches, they're kind of like Fitbits or, or Apple watches, and they were able to measure the number of steps they were doing, right? And so 70-something thousand folks, uh, we were able to follow how many steps you were doing every day, how much walking you're doing every day, and they followed these participants for about seven years. And at the end of seven years, they looked and they, found, and they asked the question, how many people develop Alzheimer's, you know, in these 70-something thousand folks? And there was several hundred folks, you know, in that group that developed Alzheimer's. And what they showed was that those who walked a lot and they were able to measure their steps, right, those who were walking about nine, ten thousand steps a day compared to those who barely walked every day, they had a 50 percent lower risk of Alzheimer's. And. And so that's huge. There isn't a pill out there that cuts your risk of Alzheimer's in half. And, you know, I mean, pharma would love that. Uh, but sure. this is just lifestyle, Bill. This is just being active, being physical. And, and so there's a lot we can do. Uh, I mean, we teach all that at the, uh, the Healthy Brain Clinic. We're in Long Beach. And, um, and so that's kind of our, our purpose and passion. But, but there's a lot that somebody can do without taking an extra pill. Uh, so I... When you do these studies, I've often looked at these studies uh, and were told by doctors, I've talked to Jim Keeney a lot, is that if you look at it in a vacuum, okay, you've got a, you walk 10,000 steps, but then uh, what kind of connection is that? What other factors are there? Uh, look at the people that do walk 10,000 steps. Uh, do they have a different lifestyle? Are uh, their brain, uh, the way they're wired is different to begin with? 
And, which leads right into, uh, right. is there indication this is genetic, that this is passed down? The, the, the answer is yes. There, there are Alzheimer's genes. There's 70-plus genes for Alzheimer's. The most popular one is APOE4. And there are genes that are associated with uh, frontotemporal dementia as well, uh, very specific genes. But here's the, things with, here's the thing with genetics. Just because you have the gene does not condemn you to the diagnosis. Uh, why is that? Because lifestyle plays a bigger role than the gene. Oh, uh, interesting. All right. So and, that, unlike Huntington's where it's automatic, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the other thing you should know about genetics. Just because you don't have the gene doesn't mean you're free and clear from not getting the diagnosis. Why is that? Because lifestyle plays a bigger role. Mm. It's so, not all just... <laughs> All right, so as we hear about lifestyle, heart disease, um, uh, lung capacity, et cetera, uh, is it fair to say then that lifestyle in this particular area, in Alzheimer's and in dementia, uh, plays probably a bigger role than it does in various other maladies? Absolutely. I mean, you cannot connect or disconnect the brain from the body. Uh, I would say that what's good for the heart is good for the brain. We know that the same risk factors for heart disease, they're the exact same risk factors for Alzheimer's, believe it or not. So, so if you want to lower your risk for Alzheimer's, simply lower your risk for heart disease. It's very interesting what we see. But you get to choose between Alzheimer's and a Big Mac. I got to tell you, that, that's a hard decision to make. You know that? Yeah, it's not as hard a decision for me, but it's a harder decision for In-N-Out Burger. Uh, see, well said. Well yeah. said. And, uh, oh, God, I love this interview. Uh, uh, let me oh, go yeah. on and ask one other question that I had asked uh, before we didn't get to. And that is, are people aware that they're going into uh, dementia or, uh, in, in this case, uh, the frontotemporal dementia? Because oh, yeah. that, so, that has to be horrific to know that it's happening to you. Absolutely. So, so let me tell you what's going on. Uh, with the issue of dementia in, in LA, LA County, in, in Orange County, it is the Alzheimer's is the number three cause of death, Jeez. right behind heart disease and cancer is Alzheimer's. The problem with dementia today is that by the time it gets diagnosed by a doctor in the office, our patient, right, our patient is already at the moderate stage of this disease, right, of Alzheimer's. We miss entirely the mild stages of Alzheimer's or dementia in general. And the reason we miss that is because we all think that memory loss is part of getting older. So nobody is thinking about Alzheimer's. We blame it on stress. We blame it on, you know, getting too busy. Uh, and while we're doing that, this dementia continues to progress. So there is a lack of screening, right, Like that is done in the doctor's office. I mean, when you go get a physical, you get an EKG, so they look for heart problems, right? You get, uh, you know, you go get your colonoscopy mm. to look for cancer. You get a mammogram to, to look for breast cancer. And, and you do all these preventative screening tests. Nobody is screening for Alzheimer's today. Okay. Right? I mean, when's, when's the last time you had a memory test? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I have one every day here, and I fail it. Uh, doctor, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Uh, we're out of time. I wish we could keep on going. Yeah. Dr. Dung Trin, Chief Medical yeah. Officer at the Healthy Brain Clinic. And if you want some information, the website is healthybrainclinic.com. And uh, I thank you for taking the time. 
Take, Take care. care, Bill. All right. Take care. Uh, now it is time for Steve Gregory, uh, as always on a Friday, and we'll talk about the unsolved next segment. Sure. But first uh, story, of course, that has exploded, uh, the Chinese balloon story. Uh, we're going to find out, uh, and the information, Steve will probably confirm it right now, that two of those balloons came from a Chuck E. Cheese's birthday party. <laughs> and, uh, that uh, the government has spent $400,000 per missile uh, to shoot down. No, you had uh, you had did an interview with uh, a really fascinating scientist talking about this. So uh, would you share? Yeah, sure. Earlier this week when, uh, you know, there was still kind of some uh, ambiguity about the Chinese balloon. Uh, I reached out to a communications engineer, and he's with a company he he started called Higher Ground up in Silicon Valley, and he used to be in the intelligence business for quite some time with the U.S. government. So he is a specialist in you know geosynchronous uh, orbits and communication satellites and all this all this stuff that uh, in your world all this Michigas that uh, has to do with communications. You Love like that? it. Yeah. So um, I was talking to him about the Chinese balloon because I'm like, I'm thinking, what was going on with the balloon? What was it doing? What was it here? And he's like, you know, everyone automatically thinks these balloons are taking pictures. He says, they're not taking pictures. He said, look at the antenna array that was on this thing. He said, satellites take pictures. He said, uh, Google, you know, Google Earth is already, Google Maps, Google Earth, you can take pictures of anything now. You can pretty much see that stuff because Google updates those photos every so often. So he said, they, you know, it's really not about photos. It's about data. I said, data? And he goes, yeah, those antennae were put up there to interfere with or to intercept, rather, wireless communication. That's all that thing was doing. It's up there to, and I said, you mean they're just listening to us? He goes, no, not necessarily. He says a lot of data is transmitted wirelessly. So he says, and I said, well, didn't they? How how did they know where the balloon was going to go? And he says they know exactly how to craft that balloon in a way where it can go a certain direction, and they can either use weather patterns. They can put an onboard like a little onboard fan, and you know they can do all kinds of things too. And he said he didn't know with great detail about whether or not that had one of those onboard fans or not. But he said they are experts at um, being able to maneuver that balloon where where it needs mm -hmm. to go. And so I I was just fascinated by that. Plus he also said every country in the world that has the ability to launch such a balloon, does so. Now, that's that's news. My question is, there has to be such a powerful algorithm uh, because the amount of data that is transmitted, there sure. has to be so much out there. It has to be just noise. Now, I know the NSA uh, has the ability and does record every single cell phone conversation in the United States. No, Bill, they do not. That's what I heard. No, Don't correct me. No, it's Bill, uh, that's that's all conspiracy. <laughs> I am not a conspiracist. <laughs> I am not a conspiracist. Uh, or they have the literally you you are the first one that has corrected me on that. No, I, I I'm just, asked, I'm joking with you. Oh, okay. Because it's just very powerful algorithms, and right. they do. I mean, they do record. I mean, uh, all they have the information. They have they, the ability to they record. Do. And but the algorithms. I mean, can you imagine every cell phone uh, conversation or twenty percent or ten percent? Uh, so the algorithm figures out uh, which ones to pay attention to. I'm assuming the Chinese have that same level. Sure. Well, here's the thing. Uh, into, into this guy's point, uh, we're not sure what, you know, if they have it tuned to a specific frequency. Because remember, wireless phones are little radios. I don't know if people under truly understand that a wireless cell phone is nothing but more than a transmitter. It's, it's a radio transmitter. And it's on a certain bandwidth. And so... 
it might have been tuned to only pick up a specific spectrum. And that was his point. So it may have only been wireless data, which is at a different, uh, a different level or different stream than voice data. And that was his point. They could, they could have specifically been honed in on only one particular frequency, and that's all they were after. And knew which frequency, and knew clearly exactly. what, uh, and, what they were And looking if you for. look at the path that that balloon flew, then it might give you a better idea what was underneath it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, Steve, of course, is the host of Unsolved, uh, the award-winning. By the way, is it award-winning? Yes. Okay, the award-winning. Well, uh, the show it's not award-winning, but the team behind it is. So let me ask you, is that akin to uh, Tom Hanks doing the worst movie that has ever appeared on a movie screen, but it's an Academy Award winner behind it? Yes. Okay, excellent. Exactly. Okay. I uh, mean, I'll take it. <laughs> of course you Well, no, because we, we're, we're in that, that award season yeah, year no, for us. We yeah. have to enter it next year. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And you're going to, as uh, you do, you're going to score just terrific. Steve has a... Uh, uh, he really has uh, an entire um, one of those storage units filled with these things. Nah. Okay, I'm lying, right? All right, Steve Gregory, uh, tomorrow night, 7 to 9 p.m., Unsolved. And so what's on the menu with that? Tomorrow is a very disturbing and graphic case, the death of a 15-year-old girl from 2005, uh, Yaneli Uoa, and she was found in the trunk of a BMW within... Uh, bird's eye view of the Pomona Police Department. And apparently she was in the back of this trunk for days before anyone uh, even noticed. And we talked to a detective, Danny Kono. He actually came out of retirement uh, last night. Uh, we were talking with him and he'd been retired from Pomona PD for quite some time. He spent 30 years, uh, 16 of it in homicide. And this was one of those cases that he says really, really sticks with him. So he reached out and we put this together and we were able to track down this girl's brother who lives in Santa Ana. And he drove over to Pomona PD to talk with us. And this is a very disturbing story of this young girl, 15 year old girl who had a 14 month old child and she got caught in something that she couldn't get out of. And we'll talk a lot about that. And the fact that her body had been left in this trunk for four or five days in the hot August heat. Ooh. And imagine. the whole time it was parked in front of a fire hydrant just to, down across the street from the Pomona Police Department. And it was a, a patrol officer that stopped and was giving it a ticket. Then it was finally someone that lived near the area that kept smelling this odor from the vehicle. And then that's when they realized there was something going on. Now, the brother, uh, was he originally questioned by the police, or is this fairly new that he's come to uh, the forefront? No, no, he was very active in the very okay. beginning, and he was, I think, within a year. So I, I believe he was just around 15 as well. I guess they were a few months apart in age. So he would have been around 15 at the time as well. And he says he remembers that day vividly. He knows exactly what happened that day. I asked him who he thinks did this and why, and he has his opinion and theory. And uh, then there's a tie to central Mexico that we'll talk about. And the fact that these detectives actually fly down to Mexico and spend about a week and a half down there. On their own. On their own. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you have a car involved, clearly there's a license plate. Clearly there's a registered owner. So they had to know who owned the car. Yep. And uh, are you at liberty to say what happened? Uh, you can tune in tomorrow for all I know that. you do that all the time to me. And I know it's these teases that uh, I throw out. Well, and they, 
And I'll also tell you, too, that uh, the Detective Kono was telling us that they had to do something with the car while the body was still in it that they'd never done before. And it had to do with preserving the evidence. And it was very unusual to do this. And he was talking about it. Uh, that, you know, they, they said they, they, they went back and forth and back and forth. But tomorrow night we'll talk about something they had to do with the vehicle, with the body still inside of it in order to preserve the evidence. And it was something he'd never done before. And he says, you know, that was their one and only time he'd mm. ever done it. And how do they, when someone is, uh, well, decomposed to that extent yeah. without sounding too graphic, uh, it, how difficult is it to identify yeah. someone? And was she uh, uh, reported as a missing person? Yeah, she was a Jane Doe for, the, for about a week because they had no means to identify because she was so badly decomposed. And just in that few days in the back of that trunk, uh, they said that uh, her body had become completely infested with insects. Oh, sure. And, and other things. And it just it was really bad. She was fully clothed. And then there was evidence inside of the car of a, like a spiderweb crack in the windshield from the inside. So they believe there was some sort of a struggle prior to that. Now, in those days, uh, if we're going back to 2005, I don't think they were doing familial DNA no. or reverse DNA. Uh, they have evidence now, of course. In those days, if you had uh, a DNA, they had DNA, mm -hmm. but unless there was a match and there was a match in some database, exactly. you don't know where it was. Were they able to tie her to a family or were they able to find, and again, uh, do I get to find out tomorrow night? Were they able to reach out to family members where at least it points to a, a, a defendant? No, and that's an excellent point because she was too young. She was in no system. Um, and that's why they were having a tough time. They ran her prints. And you're right, DNA, familial DNA was not a thing back then, or genealogical you know, investigation was not a big thing. Um, it hadn't even been really discovered yet. So they had no means of fingerprinting. Uh, they were, uh, you know, doing the dental records and all the whole nine yards, but she was too young. She wasn't in any uh, standard database. So they, they, it was very difficult. So it actually helped with the license plate, the registered owner, and tracing it and tracking it back that they were able to figure out who it was. And then they got a confirmation on a tattoo that she had and her mother. They, they, they cleaned up the body and took a very isolated photo of the tattoo, and that's how she was identified. All right, uh, that's tomorrow night, yep. 7 to uh, 9 p.m. on another award-winning or soon-to-be award-winning, uh, <laughs> why not, uh, segment of Unsolved, an Unsolved show. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks, pal. We'll catch you over the weekend. Uh, earlier this uh, morning, uh, we did a couple of segments on uh, Bruce Willis, who's been diagnosed with a very virulent form of dementia, Frodo, uh, fron uh, Fronto, or Fronto uh, temporal dementia. And uh, I talked to uh, a doctor who runs uh, the uh, healthybrainclinic.com uh, in uh, Long Beach. And uh, we talked about the kinds of, uh, you know, dementia, depression, well, more dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, but what happened uh, yesterday was uh, Senator John Fetterman. Uh, he, of course, is out of Pennsylvania, Democrat. Is, if you remember, he ran against Dr. Oz. And it was the information was released that uh, he entered in the hospital to de deal with his depression. Now, uh, it's a whole different world than it used to be. If we go back uh, to uh, not that far ago, uh, uh, that far ago, there was a Senator Thomas Eagleton 
who uh, ran for uh, vice president. This is when George uh, McGovern uh, was running for president. George McGovern probably being uh, the most liberal uh, Democrat nominee for president since FDR. And, and even before that, I mean, the guy was an out-and-out socialist. And so Thomas Eagleton, Senator Thomas Eagleton, was chosen as the vice presidential candidate. And out of uh, Missouri. And so 1972, it turns out, uh, we found out he'd been hospitalized three times for depression, undergone electroshock therapy, and... Naturally, that derailed his chance to serve in the White House or to serve as vice president 100%. To the point where uh, presidential nominee George McGovern initially said that he was 1,000% uh, behind his choice. Uh, Eagleton is vice president. And uh, eventually, guess what? He turned around and he said, nah, talk to him. And then other, other uh, Democrats talked to Eagleton and said, you got to withdraw. And that's exactly what happened. You have to withdraw. And I want to connect that with uh, what's going on with Bruce Willis, where the information was released to the general public. In 1972, let's go back, uh, where it was discovered that uh, Tom Eagleton was, uh, in fact, uh, severely depressed and had gone into the hospital for depression. No film star would ever, or family of a film star or public figure would ever release that information. The stigma of mental illness and depression, I guess, is a form of mental illness, at least a uh, very temporary light form of mental illness, uh, was a death knell. It was a death knell for politics and was a death knell for a career in, uh, insert name here, uh, whether it's sports, certainly in uh, television or film, and it just wasn't done. It's now done. We have changed completely to the good. Uh, Representative Ruben Gallego, a Democrat of Arizona, who's an Iraq uh, war veteran, uh, he tweeted, there has never been any weakness in seeking help. Why? And how does he know? He came out and said suffered from depression and PTSD. And if you look at uh, the various uh, Congress people who did fight, uh, they will readily admit uh, those that do and have suffered from PTSD, they're out there. In other words, the stigma of mental illness, certainly depression, is way out there. Uh, Fetterman, by the way, the senator, suffered a stroke in May, very serious stroke. Now, he has recovered to the point where it's almost impossible to tell. Slurs his words a little bit, a little bit slow in responding, not in thinking, not his cognitive abilities, but just in responding. And it is not unusual for those people that once, uh, especially stroke victims, uh, even major heart attack victims, to go into a depression. This is what people do. It's just part of life. Very rarely does someone who suffers a major stroke and or heart attack not go into a depressive state. And we have uh, terrific drugs out there, uh, anti-anxiety drugs, which I eat like Skittles. Hey, I, you know what? I've been pretty honest about uh, my depressive mental illness state, haven't I, over the years? I think so. And has it hurt my career? Uh, no, and I'll tell you why. I have a contract, and they can't do much about it. But at the same time, do you think I would have been able to say, yeah, 
I take anti-anxiety drugs, and I have for many, many years. Would I have said that on the air 20 years ago? Of course not. I mean, you couldn't do that. You can't be a politician 20 years ago or 40 years ago and say, yeah, I took uh, or I am taking uh, psychotropic drugs. Now, with Eagleton, it's a little bit different because he went through electroshock therapy and three times hospitalized. Okay, that's pretty serious. But Fetterman just checked himself into a hospital voluntarily. And is it going to hurt him politically? It is not. Matter of fact, I'm going to go beyond that. I think it's going to help him politically. Because uh, what it does is show courage. What it does is show an individual that it will confront his or her problems right there immediately. Not afraid to uh, tell the public the absolute truth. But it's a very different world. We just go public with it. And uh, just uh, kudos to Bruce Willis and his family for sharing uh, that. And uh, we've had people that have had mastectomies who have gone public, uh, women, uh, certainly those who have had all kinds of medical problems. Uh, Katie Couric, if you remember, uh, she was on the Today Show, lost her husband to colon cancer. She had a colonoscopy on the air. I mean, on the air, a doctor performed a colonoscopy. Uh, Now, granted, there were sheets around her at the time, but... Uh, that is a different story. All right. Take care, everybody. This is KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.